0: All right, we're uh, we're back for uh, part two of the retrospective. I'm having a great time. The wheel you in know, the so sky keeps on turning, Chris. Always, always, it, it's gonna. Wheel turn.
1: in the sky keeps on turning.
0: I don't know where I'll be tomorrow. But okay. <laughs> 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 oh my god! Another deliciously awkward beginning. Thank you, guys. Appreciate what is them? wrong with us and you
1: especially?
0: <laughs> yeah, <they're very> <laughs> it's a good thing, you know. One of the one of the reviews we got on our iTunes rating says, "Great for a rewatch. Doesn't focus around the hosts, but a deep dive into the episodes." And it's, it's a good thing for all of you. We don't focus. on Do those. they want more about no, us? No, no. That it was a five star review saying oh, like okay. it's about the episodes. I'm Glad not it's the,
2: not about the, us. Yeah, because
0: <laughs> let me tell you something. That'd be a fucked up fucked up podcasts. If It'd we be real it right. weird. <laughs> Super so, weird. But you know what? That's <laughs> okay. <a> <laughs> We're going to get right into it here with another
2: top three. <laughs> top three. Top three, yeah.
0: All right. And with that, I want to get into our top three Favorite moments. Ooh, for yeah. season two. This is always like this is the, the hardest, hardest one. question because this is the hardest
1: one, obviously yes. every episode is made up of hundreds of moments mm-hmm. and to pick just three from a whole season of amazing television is fucking impossible. It's
0: impossible. The idea of having four of us talk about our favorite moments is that we're all gonna like maybe give different ones. Yeah. Maybe not, but you know, so that we'll get to talk about it because on any given day, at any given moment in life. This list could change just based on, like, ooh, that one, ooh, that one, ooh, that one. We were going over favorite episodes earlier. Lily and I were talking about it, and there was, like, an episode I was like, oh, yeah, that episode is in this season. Fuck. How am I going to pick three? Mm -hmm. And it's even worse with moments because there's just this, every episode, you could do a top ten moments in every episode, let alone three for a whole season. But we're doing it. We're up for the challenge here. This is the Sopranos podcast, baby. Yeah. Uh, So who would like to go first on moments? I'll lead.
1: Great. Um, So, again, impossible to pick, so I'm just hoping to highlight some moments that might be some other people's favorite moments as well, or among their favorites. So actually, I have a bunch from Big Curls Don't Cry, Mm. which I think is an amazing episode. So, as mentioned in part one of our retrospective, Furio versus the tanning salon and brothel staff in Big Girls Don't Cry. It's just Ooh. this amazing moment. Yeah, okay. Um. It is such a star turn for the character. and just really lets you know what his function is going to be going forward as the guy you do not fuck with ever. Mm-hmm. Ever. Because this is just like an action movie character that just comes in. He doesn't care if you're white, black, woman, man, old, young, whatever. Yep. He's just going to hit you in the face with his fist until you give him his fucking money. Yeah. Uh, and it's just brutal and cool and to watch. And that moment
0: is, is especially driven into awesomeness by the way it was shot. Yeah, yeah. it's shot from behind him. Yeah, that tracking so shot. So it's like
1: video game POV of yeah. just being like, watch and, and learn and see yes. what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And then I have two more from the same episode that are I'm, I'm tying. I know it's like illegal. I'm sorry. I'm tie- This is a tied moment. So this would be um, Chris's turn as Jim Stark in Rebel Without a Cause in his uh, acting for writers class. Um, because it's such a good moment for Chris like almost coming out of his shell, or he does come out of his shell for a minute a minute of just like all, all his guards are let down. He finds this really authentic moment and is ashamed of it, right? Is sort of embarrassed by it. It's just a beautiful moment for the character and um, just really makes Christopher me in that episode. But tied with the same moment as, you know, Chris versus Mitch in the improv scene <laughs> when he just hits Mitch as hard as he can in the face mm. before running out on the, uh, the class forever. Um, it is hard not to pick this moment this season, and I really tried to not pick the moment, but I, I could still remember the feeling the first time I ever saw Janice shoot Richie at the kitchen table. And it's just, the moment is so explosive, and it's one of the most famous moments in the whole series. Yeah. I did want to acknowledge it, even though it almost it almost defies acknowledgement, because it, you can't ignore it. It's not something anyone would ever miss. You know, it's, it's right there, but it's, um, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's, the ma- it's amazing the way it makes everything turn. It's the way it makes sort of inevitability special. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just a, a great, great moment. And, uh, yeah, honorable mention for the entire episode of D Girl. And that's it.
0: <laughs> D Girl is a special place in our hearts, I yes. think, as, as movie people and as, you know. Yeah, it's. Yeah. Just- and it's just so rich well,
1: the, the real honorable mention from Dear Girl comes to me with the, it's, it's Chris's story in the pizza parlor, right? Mm-hmm. About the girl mm-hmm. uh, who was burned with the acid, right? Mm-hmm. That story has always stayed with me, but also it is the dread fascination on the faces of Amy and Jon Favreau as the story unfolds. Mm-hmm. And you know that for them, they have crossed the threshold into the real world. Oh no, we're not in Hollywood anymore. This is something grotesque, mm-hmm. but special, and we're fascinated.
3: Mm. Very fun exchange from that Crying Game. Uh, this is a true story. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: that. They uh, that was my honor rule mention, and you described it far better than I could. Have. Oh, so please. Thank you so much, <laughs> Mr. Jordan. Would <Hino. laughs> like to go
0: next, Lily?
2: I can sure. So number three uh, is Meadow gets Eric's car. Yeah, I Good think on. it's a huge turning point for Meadow. It just every time I see that episode, my heart sinks. Because it just, you feel that disgust that Meadow feels, like, realizing it's her own friend's car. It just, it gets too close to home. Because I feel like school is kind of where, almost where, those two kids can kind of just be themselves. Yeah. Maybe Mm -hmm. not as much for AJ, but definitely for Meadow. And that, that slapping her in the face really is a very memorable moment for me. Yeah. Uh, number two is anything having to do with Pauly food in Italy. <laughs> I just, yep. it just brings a smile to my face watching him just, it's not a shot in schadenfreude, but there's just such a charm watching him hate Italy. Yeah. <laughs> and wanting him, wanting to love it so much. Yeah, I
1: love when he just tries to salute with his little espresso and the guy yeah, who tries to salute is just not having it.
2: Just. It's yeah, it's it's a it's a pure joy and a light sadness at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh for me. And so I just it had to I had to say it. And then Carmella with the regot pie. Ooh um, yeah. Yeah. In Jeannie Cusamano sister's office. It's just it's so just boss bitch. I'm here. But what do you mean? I'm just bringing you a pie. Yeah. yeah. I love it so much. Ooh, great moment. It's like great moment. Just pure female manipulation at its best and it's just masterful and masterfully acted by goddess Edie, Edie Falco yeah well said
1: well said very well said
3: okay moments uh two quick honorable mentions uh first guy walks into a psychiatrist's office Tony comes home to Carmela. just dullness the regularity of things mm. other honorable mention house arrest Tony returns to Satriales great yeah. moment at the end there yeah yes
0: I love those prolonged (laughs) moments of life. Like, just casual life.
1: That house arrest moment, that is the one where kind of Pussy turns the other way early and kind of like walks back into the the shop. Yeah, that guy
0: Dominic speeding through the neighborhood. They're talking about moisturizer. Tony's polishing his shoes. There's like
1: kind of a tableau kind of going on. in (laughs) Yeah,
2: Yeah.
3: it's a great ending uh, frame. Yeah. Yeah. Number three, D-Girl. Big Pussy and Anthony Jr. Mm. The scene where Big Pussy goes and talks to him and embraces him. Uh, and the weight of his treachery is there. It's a great episode in the overall. Also great moments at the end with yeah. Chris as well.
0: Um, You're talking about the scene at the house at the confirmation when he goes up to have a heart to heart with him about his dad and what a good man he is.
3: Yeah, mm. that scene and what the doubleness of it all. <laughs>
0: yeah, um,
3: is powerful. Uh, it's one of the great offerings of Vincent Pastore in this season, who does such great work. Yeah. Number two, uh, Richie sits on a copy of New Jersey Bride. <laughs> <laughs> And then Janice puts one in his chest and one in his face.
1: Yep. I mean, uh, that moment is so just explosive. Yeah, just
3: uh, unforgettable. Not much more to say about it. And number one, more overlap with uh, with Lily. Um, Tony lays it down for Meadow after he gives her the car. And mm. something is... There's a doubleness here, too, in the lesson that the kid is taught. Because... It's so brutal, and it seems to certainly come out in a clumsy and angry way. Mm-hmm. But it's also so clear that Tony wants Meadow to understand this, mm-hmm. and there's not. It's not a purely vindictive action. It's right. much more complicated than that. Yeah. So to me, it was. It, it's. I think from season two, it's it's the moment with most lasting impact for me. Yeah. It's a big
0: moment. It's not just spiteful. It is on on the surface level. It's like. You're going to eat this car one way or the other. You're getting it like this or you're getting it as things. But you're getting this car. And uh, you're going to have to swallow it. And it's a metaphor for their whole lifestyle. But it's also deeper than that because as is elicited through therapy. And it's such a smart way to write all this. That uh, in a way Tony is teaching her to fly. And making her, like forcing her to have a moment of confrontation with the life that she's been born into. Yeah so good. So powerful. My top 3 moments. Jordan, you and I are of like minds on these top moments. I can I can't forget last season. And I'll tell you why you're not cheating on your um two on your tie there because uh I think you and I both had the same moment from season 1, which was just general Tony looks up, which happens a lot in season 1. Yeah, Him searching for something higher and trying to understand uh, the more kind of sophisticated uh, analyses of life and art and, and music and higher learning, institutions of higher learning and therapy and the subconscious mind and how he's at heart just this kind of blue collar guy overwhelmed by this but, but intrigued, smart enough to be intrigued by it and these moments where he looks up really capture the spirit of who this guy is and what, what, what it's all about. So, with the spirit of that, considering that that was multiple moments in one, my number three moment is basically your number two. I just wrote Chris's acting class as right. a broad like right. moment of his Chris. brush with yeah. higher learning with yes. you know with something that exactly. opens him up. Yeah. So my, and that includes the Mitch improv. That includes the improv with Omar, where he drops his oranges. It includes the Repo without a cause. Uh, all of it. Yes. Yeah. just Chris I, I going if, through that.
1: We mentioned this when we actually discussed the episode, but folks really underestimate what it goes into really being an actor. Yeah, you know, y- you know, depending on the material you're working on, you have to be very vulnerable. And if you know someone like Christopher who has a lot of issues, is not ready to be vulnerable. And I think he's surprised by what he finds there. And I yeah. think those moments are just crazy good to watch.
0: Yep. So that'll always stick with me. Is is that moment and yeah. Chris Chris doing that. Uh, another Chris moment in season two, and this is more of a personal favorite. I don't know that it holds up to some of the emotional gravity of uh, a lot of the moments you guys brought up, the Meadow Car scene, the Regat Pie even, um, but it's, uh, I just, it brings a fucking smile to my face every single time, so it counts. <laughs> Chris and John Favreau coked up, yeah. talking about there's his script. He's got to wear, to, you know, we find out about Frankie, wears taps on his shoes. It's fucking absurd. <laughs> it's <laughs> the more we learn about Chris's script and John Favreau trying to diplomatically tell him it sucks. <laughs> and Chris is too coked up to not get it. He asks, have you ever, you know, and Chris is like, I can't know. tell you if you don't ask. You know, they're just having so much fucking fun. You could tell that that was a fun day on set. Just by watching those actors work. So that's that's a number two moment for me for just pu- the pure joy it brings me the pure smile it brings to my face every time, and number one, jo- uh, Janice shoots Richie. We yeah, have the same number one moment. It, I'm it. wondering uh, how many seasons this record's gonna keep up, Jordan. Where you and I have the same top moment, but not that lists without this as the top of the top moment like aren't valid. But like this is. I've watched this series now several times and I've done it with friends, with people. I've gotten other people into it and watched it with friends, watched it with Lily. If you're out there listening and you watched it for the first time, you can't tell me you weren't like totally shocked by that. Everyone I've ever watched it with is like, <gasps> audible gasp. It's like yeah. you see the gun and it's like, oh, this, this, what is, wait, oh, ho! Oh. It's like, you can't believe it just happened. Yep. And the fact that they, and we talked about this in the episode, but the fact that they managed to surprise you Even after a hit has been ordered on Richie. So you're like, okay, violence is going to happen. Either Tony is going to have a a hit or Richie is going to get hit. And they they still manage to shock you in the very next scene.
2: Because just like in Sopranos fashion, and you've talked about this, and I will respect your no spoilers rule, right death, wrong reason? Yeah. Right? That's a big theme in The Sopranos. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, Richie was supposed to go down, but he was supposed to go down in the last episode and buy Tony, right? Well, it's the penultimate episode in Janice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Yep. So, it, of course, it's a big shock. Of course, it comes feels like it comes out of nowhere. What That's what was supposed to happen. yeah. And that's what Paul was saying earlier about just constantly surprises right. you. Sure.
0: But surprising, but also makes sense. Correct. In a great Oh, you see way.
2: her switch. You see how he talked. You can watch her and there's a lot absorbing the information. There. He's talking to her, and she's thinking, This is what I'm going to put up with with the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. No. Boom.
0: And Jordan, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I agree with you. This is an interpretation, it's not explicit, but I think it's there in Aguizatoro's acting and in some of the subtext there. She's lived a complicated, crazy life, Janice has. And you mentioned in the episode that you think this is definitely not the first time Janice has been hit by a man, correct? But it's definitely the last.
1: Yeah, I think that's the read. Um, I just yeah. I watched I watched it again, and um, she receives the hit. There, the first moment is the initial shock of being punched in the face, which mm-hmm. any person would have, and then it's the way her mouth traces her face, mm. where the trace is familiar. It's like I've felt this before, and then the next thing you see is her hand gradually leaves her mouth, which is now bleeding, and the expression in her eyes is a searching for what to do next in this moment. Like she, it's it's decision time right yeah. then and there, mm-hmm. and then she moves, mm-hmm. and that's how quickly it uh, goes from he just hit me, no one is ever going to hit me again, right? That and that's no words on that.
0: Mm-hmm. She's a master
1: correct
2: Yeah. Absolutely yeah. very well said.
0: So, great moments guys. Uh thank you for that. That was a great top 3. Made me very made me feel things just talking about it in this way, but these are the moments that uh, left an impact on us. Feel free to chime in on this. I want to hear from you guys. Tag us in social media posts, email us, whatever. Uh, let us know your favorite moments from season 2. There's no lack of them. There's no shortage of great moments. Again, I could make this I could make 50 different versions of this top 3 list and talk about even shit that we didn't put in this particular list. It's just it's so rich. But I want to shift gears a little bit. A lot of season 1 was built around Livia and Junior as the primary antagonists and they're they're vital and they're dangerous and they're playing their own game both with each other and with the people around them and they are such forces of gravity. And they they are able to maintain that gravitas, but in diminished roles in season two. I want to talk about the elders here in season two. Junior, Olivia, the positions they find themselves in. Junior's having health problems. He's under house arrest. He's under financial strain from the impending trial. Olivia, what has this stroke, quote unquote, done to her? And what has what position has it left her in? And what power does she still have in this whole situation? And where does she all go? And how she plays into her history with Tony plays into what happens at the end of the season with the airline tickets so let's let's have a conversation about Junior and Livy I think it's a worthwhile conversation. My grandfather used to say you have to be brave to get old
1: uh, <laughs> My grandfather only made it to 70 uh, and then he unfortunately uh, passed away from uh, cancer. Junior is someone who we really get the impression of junior that when he was younger he was a, a hellraiser. No nonsense. Like, this guy fucking ran shit. Like, mm-hmm. he was impressive in his day. But now he's an old man. Mm-hmm. He's old. He is infirm. He has health issues. And it's uh, made all that more complicated by the fact that Junior is a terribly dignified character who is, you know, very conscious of how he is perceived by other people. You know, we, we went through this so much with Boca in, in season one. And, you know, now that he's been removed from his position of power but quote-unquote gets to keep his stripes, you know, he has to kind of like live this false life where he's not really in a position of power in the family. It is a marvelous turn for the character because now we're kind of taking him out of, you know, contention in terms of what goes on with the capital F family. More about like what goes on with capital O old age. Yeah. Right? Uh, And that struggle is in many ways more interesting because he is someone who should have died quite a while ago he should have been killed in some kind of gunfight he should have been whacked uh some weird accident should have happened to him he should have died in his fighting days because now that he's not in his fighting shape anymore he doesn't really know what to do with himself but what a treat for us the viewer that we get to see him just kind of be forced to endure and the amazing stories that that come out of that it's cool in this season that he kind of acts as like this um, shadow emperor, mm. right? Uh, that Richie can kind of go see behind Tony's back, and they can have these fun plotting scenes. And even though it doesn't work out for Richie, it does lend Junior some of his old gravitas because he does get to still weigh in on the important issue and ultimately make a truce with Tony. Paul said earlier in in uh, you know the first part of our retrospective that a lot of this you know season is kind of a a reunion love story between Tony and Junior. I feel that very much. Mm. I feel that, you know, Junior doesn't return to power by the end, but he rises above subsistence level of earnership, Mm -hmm. right? He's back in the circle of Tony's trust and he's still relevant again by the end of the season. But we are left with the impression that, yeah, he's, he's very much in his diminished state.
0: And he overcomes a lot by doing that because let's face it, this is a guy who cares a lot about his dignity and his face and his name and his reputation and growing old is a series of increasingly frequent indignities. Getting sick, going to doctor, having awful fucking annoying procedures. Getting, getting your hands, hands stuck sticks. in the garbage disposal yeah. for six hours while you scream and try to pick up the phone with a ladle. <laughs> um, we shouldn't laugh, but it's
1: very funny. It is funny. No, I it's, think
0: it's, it's meant to be funny. We're supposed to laugh at that, but... Yeah, that's that's what Junior's facing and he still manages to somehow he's a he's a sly old fox. He's not you know, he does get outplayed in season 1 by Olivia, but this dog still has a couple tricks up his sleeve even if there is a dreading kind of foreboding sense around Junior that his last run against Tony may may have been his like his last real heyday. You know what I mean? Like yeah, like you said he should have that conflict with Tony should have killed him, but he got—he just got arrested. And Junior, Junior made it perhaps a little too long for his yeah. own good. Junior's punishment is that
1: he's forced to being—he's being forced to live an essentially a normal life. Mm. That's the punishment. He should be in jail. He should be dead. He should be on the lam from the law.
3: But he's just forced to live life as a regular old man. He cannot do this. Yeah. The, in one of the episodes, I think, when we talked about Night and Knight White Satin Armor, Jordan mentioned King Lear. And, mm. the, I mean, this is where J- Junior, again, I think, has thought of himself in terms of actually kind of Shakespearean dignity. And now he's very dependent upon younger people. This is There's really gutsy storytelling, I think, with both Junior and Livia, dealing with, of course, how uncomfortable it is to be older, to have these various medical issues it's not something that tv has traditionally done a lot certainly not when Mm. tv is used to sell soap and other (laughs) things that they that are advertised they stay away from older characters once in a while
0: you'll get you'll get a great movie about elderly
3: people or some or aging but yeah tv for the most part there's a reason for that the the old people don't buy products as much Mm. i mean this unless they're watching news channels which is why you get ads for fucking unguents and stuff on <laughs> new shows. But here they they took it and went with it, and it, it is really interesting. It's interesting to see both of these characters diminished not only in terms of screen time, but in terms of how well they can do getting out of doors, how comfortable they are in life. And I think in particular with Junior, who realized by the end of season one that he had been second fiddle, we get to see a bit more of him, particularly I think in House Arrest and Night in White Satin Armour, that brings it back all, uh, brings it back together in an interesting way. Maybe even regaining some of that dignity. But I will say that at the end of the, the run, he still gets kicked out of the graduation ceremony in a very funny moment. <laughs> Carmella sees you here; she's gonna rip you a new asshole. I'm leaving, and he like storms <laughs> off. It's very again like sort of sad in a way, but pretty yeah. funny. Yep. And Livia,
0: her role has diminished naturally by the narrative. So I'm not throwing any kind of thing that any implication that it was unnaturally done but i i do also know that nancy marchand was starting to have a, some health issues at this point and so that may have also been a part of why she didn't appear perhaps as frequently as she did in season one season one you could count on at least one or two really strong livia scenes per episode she was a little bit more sporadic and and you know a lot of her scenes and because of the her health situation the character's health situation she was Immobile. Some scenes you could tell maybe she was a little more tired or in pain that day. You know, a little bit of kind of a meta thing creeping in. But Livia still looms large. You can't deny that when she has her moments, she makes she maximizes her minutes. You know? Oh, yeah. Coming through on the intercom, she can make you laugh. That last scene with Tony is disturbing. Very disturbing. Well, not last scene, but that scene in Night and White Satin Armor where she comes down the stairs and they have that face-to-face and she's being manipulative and toxic and and laughing at him when he falls into a cry. I mean, she is just such a dynamic performer. You gotta hand it, like, she is still to me, even in her diminished state, the specter that looms over all. Like, you know, it's the thing. She she has become she who must not be named in this one. Tony literally is like, she's dead to me, don't mention her. Right. Uh, Janice actually refers to her as that. Right, yeah. yeah. But she's not gone, and she is still a force. This is the woman who seeded this garden as you said earlier yeah
1: well we have like a little parallel storytelling because you know richie seeks out junior's old power hoping to rally it against tony janice seeks out livia's power you know Mm. trying to see how she can leverage that and that's the parallel there they're still potent characters junior and livia there is still power there it's just not power that they can necessarily wield they're gonna have to you know lend it to others in some way Mm. but yeah livia can never not loom large she is the specter over the whole show arguably the entire series
3: and of course, Tony hasn't really dealt with much of anything. Right, again, which... the, the denial. Right, well, it, of course, what she did to him in childhood, and how she plotted against him, which Melfi is begging him to reflect on at the end. Yeah. And he can't yet. It's just too painful. You know, how does, any, how does anyone se- turn to face that? You know? She's just too senile to remember who she hates. And that's another great line <laughs> yeah. from Night in White Satin Armor when he finds out she's on Prozac. <laughs> yeah. Junior
1: is really trying to put them back together. He, he's very insistent that... Um, well, maybe not insistent, but he would like for them to be able to coexist. right?
0: Uh, I think some of that is to absolve himself of some guilt... And also to save his own face, right? because if Tony yeah. is able to make peace with his mother, she wasn't the master
1: manipulator. Right, exactly. I, I think it probably is more that. But also, uh, you know, whenever it's brought up and Junior has the chance to weigh in on it, you know, he from prison, when Tony actually ca- calls him through the glass in prison, you know, he says, you know, your, your mother, you know, she's out of her mind. She doesn't know what she's doing. But Tony, Tony knows the truth. Mm. He can't accept that.
0: Well said speaking of powerful women who loom large over this show let's shift gears a little bit talk about melfi mm. what a season she had she was integral to season one i mean it was the, the probably i mean the elevator pitch of the sopranos is: mob guy walks into a psychiatrist's office done right that's a sell that's a sell right there it sold a movie a, a comedy movie with robert de niro and billy crystal and it sold this show to hbo uh, to you know to get a pilot made so yeah what a, now we mentioned this at Overall, Melfi had a very kind of subtle arc in this season. But it is an arc, and it is an interesting. We really got to see. You know, season one was about Melfi helping Tony realize that his mother was a toxic influence on his life and out to kill him. That was her role. That was her function in therapy, was to get this guy to stop having panic attacks and see the truth about his family. Season two. We mentioned every episode, and we made a point to mention that these scenes felt meandering and, and directionless, and not in a way that's like, oh, this is bad writing, these scenes aren't interesting. It was in the sense that Melfi is adrift. We're seeing the effect to- treating Tony has had on her. What a fascinating turn that this termite, this this toxic influence, Tony being poison, has corrupted the in, in, in a certain sense... Dr. Melfi, and poison her life in a way that is difficult to reckon with, and she starts drinking. She starts engaging in arguments with women over cigarettes in restaurants <laughs> and embarrassing her, embarrassing her terrible son. Uh, and uh... <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about Melfi's journey in Season 2, where she started telling him, get out of my life, to taking him back and getting on the straight and narrow, but still having... No, what, no strategy at, at hand to get through Tony's denial
3: systems. I think that was the first smart thing that they did was in the first episode of season two. She tells him to fuck off. Yeah. Because that means we get a good... like Almost half of this season, Tony's not in therapy at all. Yeah. We get glimpses, small runner storylines where Melfi is consulting with her annoying psychiatrist... Elliot Kupferberg. Elliot Kupferberg. Yep. Peter Bogdanovich is so great in this role. But she's wrestling with whether or not to take him back. I think Elliot's water bottle is one of my honorable mentions. <laughs> 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 yeah. or for a food moment. Uh, yeah, and then as you said, I think it's it's more of Melfi's therapy as the framework, and then when she does finally invite him back, it's her trying to reconcile with who this guy is in her life, looming too large, having too much of an effect, her mm. being too reactive and not being able to even process it without I mean she's drinking in the middle of the day. Yeah. During work hours. This is not it's not professional. It's not like her. Right. At all. So and it's really I think so the story ends up being that she has to come back to herself before she tries to get through Tony's very powerful denial system.
1: Yeah, I mean the the way season 1 ended, I mean this guy comes into her life like a wrecking ball. <laughs> And, and essentially destroys what she's built, uh, and destroys her confidence, and um, we get to go, go on this really interesting journey with her as she gets that back. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, you know, shunning him, trying to keep him out, uh, going through this self-examination process with Kupferberg, and, you know, gradually putting the pieces back together. I love the meandering therapy sessions, because it's meandering for both of them. Tony can't quite figure out what's going on with him, and she can't quite figure out what's going on with her. And then when they finally start to link up by the end of the season, it's divine, Yeah, right? He's still having problems, most notably this season, as Paul has said, problems with denial. But when she comes back, she is keener, and she is more focused for having had her failings and her alcoholism and, and all of that business, and she too. she tells him
0: flat out, at some point, I became scared of you. That's yeah. a big thing to admit to him and sure. to herself. Well, it's yeah. like... You know, it's a big part of what happened.
1: But by the time we get to Night in White Satin, you know, and into Funhouse and all that business, I mean, those therapy sessions are actually rewarding, I yeah. think. And you can see how much stronger she is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when he talks about, again, his affair with Arena and how it's wrapping up, you know, was you know, if you're, she's been sleeping with me for however many years. Was, has that been a hardship for her, right? Like the, yeah. the, the wisecracking, to me, is a symbol of confidence, right? She's okay standing up to him again. Uh, and and actually going through the analysis. I know that their last therapy session of the season is not very fulfilling for her, but we can see at least it's back on track.
0: Yes, there is a potential path forward. And, you know, this is a big question. I think a big dramatic, you know, one of the things you're taught in writing school or drama analysis is the major dramatic question, which, you know, rules are there meant to be bent and broken and, and twisted and contorted for people who are talented enough to make that work. But essentially, I, I think from minute one of the show, you're asking, okay, mob guy having panic attacks, sees a therapist, can she help him? And we're two seasons in now, and that's not clear yet. Mm-hmm. Can she help Tony? Should she help Tony? Can he be helped? Can he be Exactly. What's it? They've been, it's been on quite a journey. They dealt with the catastrophe and crisis of season one, season two. Tony, they're, they're not even seeing each other half the time. And then when they do get back, Melfi, is, her life is disintegrating because of the fear and the problems that he has made for her and the trauma of treating him. And can Tony be helped? I guess we don't know by the end of season two, but we can at least see that she is now back in a position. They've kind of found an interesting way to get back to a, a good baseline to perhaps... Get to, the, get to some root causes next season. We'll see how that plays out. No spoilers. But yeah, I thought it was a great season for Melfi. Lorraine Bracco played it with such grace and dignity as she always does. And uh, I'm looking forward to wherever Tony and Melfi's therapy goes from here. But quite a year, quite a year for them. Great stuff. It was great to see a different side of Melfi. A lot of season one we had to speculate. How does Melfi feel about this based on what we see in the office?
1: Right, this went much more behind the curtain with yes. what's going on with her and her life. And her therapy sessions have been so rewarding for us as viewers. Yep. So I think it's time for another top three.
2: Top, top three, three baby! Top three, top three! Top three, top three. I'm, three I'm,
0: whoop, yeah, whoop. three, 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 three. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> hey, I was wondering how long that would go. That's great. A oh, wow. <laughs> We're going to do favorite characters slash performances. I want to extend the cav- the, the caveat here, here The <clears throat> what I like to call in the Sopranos podcast, the big exception. We are not going to list Tony as one of our favorite characters' performances. He is so integral to this show, so key to what happens, and the show is around him, and... The gravitas of the show is James Gandolfini and the work he put into it. Therefore, there's just no way he wouldn't dominate the list every single every single year. So Tony, uh, yeah, we're taking a moment to acknowledge Tony James Gandolfini. That's a default number one for the, forever because the show is James Gandolfini. Is you know, of you, course, you strip everything away, it's it's his show. But we're going to uh, talk about any other characters. This does not have to be characters new to season two. Uh, your list can, in theory, be identical to what happened in season one. It's just who, if you think about three characters or performances from this season that really got to you, who is it? Yeah. Uh, who's starting? I'll start this one. I feel like I keep starting. I want to start. Yeah, yeah. I'll start this one. Uh, so number three for me is, I. By the way, I have an honorable mention here, but I actually want to save the conversation for in between the top three because I think it's worthy of its own conversation. But number three for me is Dominic Chianese as Uncle Junior. Mm -hmm. For the reason, though though he was diminished and though he was not in every episode and he was not the primary antagonist, it forced us to see a different side of him. It forced him to do different things. And he was surprising and vulnerable in a way that we hadn't seen before. Slipping in the shower, talking with Catherine Romano and, and having that sweet conversation in the basement, him dealing with house arrest, him dealing with Bobby... Uh, Junior and Bobby provide some of my favorite moments in, in uh, you know the show, and mm-hmm. just their chemistry is is great for minute one, and the way Bobby looks out for him. Lear and the fool, man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Junior, the way I talked at length about the way he's written with the Shakespeare quotes and the funny one-liners, and watching TV and and some soap opera and commenting on the goings-on on the show. It's just J- Dominic brings such dignity and joy to this character. I. Had to mention him. He had to make it. He just bare. He just made it. Number two for me is Ida Totoro as Janice. Uh, Welcome addition to the show. The fact, look, I'm a pro wrestling fan. I love a heel. You, the fact that there's a character on the show that you mention, and everyone who's ever seen the show (laughs) goes, oh, Janice, fuck Janice. You elicit that bit strong of a reaction, even if it's hatred and disgust. You're doing your job as an actor because Ida Totoro, by all reports, is an absolute sweetheart. Yeah. Uh. So killer performance. Yeah, she she, she actualizes this woman. You think it's one thing at first, and then you realize who she is. She's manipulative. She's putting on a face. She switches. The acting in Night and White Satin Armor when she's on the phone with him and when she's she, like Jordan broke down her the moment after the punch. So special. So Janice is season 2 and speaking of is season 2 my number 1 has to be David Proval yes. as Richie Aprile the Manson lamps the <laughs> stare the cold indifference cruelty the the griping the old school the fact that the guy is like 5 foot 2 and he's still intimidating as fuck like he looks like he can slice an eyeball out of your head and not think twice about it the, sh- the shit he does and says to Beansy he's just so callous and evil and menacing he's an elemental character not a political character so he lacks a certain nuance and a certain finesse but he doesn't you know the thing is like he's still a threat without that and that's so interesting and to this show it's a very fresh thing for a villain you know junior and livia had to put on a face richie didn't have to put on a face he is who he is he's old school he put on a little bit of a face to janice until his actual identity was realized in that last moment when he punches her and it's like this is who i am and we know who you are, and so the real Richie kind of comes out at the very end there for, for Janice, but for the most part, Richie April is exactly who he says he is, and he'll do what he wants to you, and there's nothing you can fucking do about it. Absolutely. So Richie April, tour de force performance by David Proval, and even in the little moments where he lends the dignity to it uh, with the tripe and tomatoes scene and the jacket, and you actually feel a flash of pity for this awful human being. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Um, my list is going to sound a little similar to season one because I just have my favorites. and Of course. Sorry, not sorry. So coming in number three is Melfi because mm. watching her kind of fall apart this season, the aftermath of season one, particularly the smoking incident, particularly her, her own therapy sessions... She's just so leveled and has such range, Lorraine Bracco. And I just, I love her journey. I really do. Uh, Number two is Carmella because she's my queen. And (laughs) I love everything she She does. It
0: was very hard to leave her off my list. Queen
2: goddess Carmella. I mean, it was hard to leave everybody off. Right. Christopher Moltisanti is like my number one favorite character on The Sopranos. But just again, not this season. Yeah. But Carmella is just. I've said quite a bit about her already today, so, uh, or on the, the retrospective, so I don't need to go into too much. But she's the queen, everything having to do with what's the carpenter's name? Vic. Everything having to do with Vic and the wallpapering and watching her just deal with that, the regat pie, Richie April, everything. She's perfect. And then thirdly, I had Janice, too. I mean, as much as my initial reaction in part one was, ugh, and it will always be, ugh, it's exactly what Chris said. She's just, she's such a good heel. There are few characters that I react to so strongly on The Sopranos as I do Janice. So she's got to be number one for season two. She's doing her job. She does it well.
3: I'll be quick with mine because there's a lot of uh, interesting overlay. I have three honorable mentions. Uh, Vincent Pastore as Big Pussy, great, great work. Lorraine Bracco as Dr. Malfi, sensational as always. And Dominic Cheney as Uncle Junior. Particularly what he offers in House Arrest is just sensational. Yes. Yes. And powerful and funny and weird and all that great stuff. With, what, my fucking toes? <laughs> and that sort of thing. Uh, number three, Aida Totoro is Janice. It's already been said. Sensational heel. Great work. Number two, Carmela Soprano. Yeah. Edie Falco, there are really good storylines with Carmela as a driving force. For example, I think in Full Leather Jacket, Bringing the ricotta Pie, Being a Great Gangster. But even in storylines... Where she is not the main character, where she is reactive, yeah. she's unbelievable. Yeah. Just her having to deal with Tony's moods is enough to keep an actor busy, yep. and Edie Falco just crushes it. I'm yep. in awe of her. Yeah. And number one, David Proval as Richie Aprile. We are in, com- we are in-, in we sync are- on that one. Absolutely. Th- there's not much else to say. I got fucking fearless for his size. <laughs> um, an incredible performance. We hardly knew ye. I guess it wasn't sustainable, like something had to give with what chaos this character brought. But David Proval himself is such a seems like such a sweet guy and such a generous guy, and he really was on to something with the way that he played this role. Yeah. Both in the way the character could be chaotic and the way that he seemed to simmer mm-hmm. and keep things quiet before the, the calm before the storm that he would execute. Yeah. Absolutely. That's
2: such a good point. You know, I was thinking I remember how I felt the first time I saw Richie April, the very first time I watched The Sopranos, and I knew instantly, I remember making a remark, oh, that guy's bad. <laughs> you just look at him and you know, like, that guy's not going to be good news. But yeah, he's just that quiet fear. He doesn't have to be big. He doesn't have, because he's going to ruin your legs and <laughs> your life and be really grouchy about it, you know? Absolutely. So, well said, Paul.
1: Yeah. My honorable mention is for Robert Patrick as Davey Scatino. That's who I
0: was talking about. I want to have a conversation about him in between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Do we want to we stop can now? No, or? let's do it now. Let's talk about oh. Robert Patrick right now because I think his contribution to the season can't yeah. be understated. So
1: this was this season's Vin McKazian. Right. Um, so in, in season one, of course, we had John, the legendary John Hurd as private detective, well, slash dirty cop. Uh, Vin McKazian. And what we really liked about John Hurd's casting was like, this was like America's dad. You know, someone who had always been like the paragon of like fatherly virtue brought low in The Sopranos. We have the opposite in Robert Patrick. He's most famous as the T-1000. He's a screen villain, an unstoppable, badass motherfucker. And we cast him against type in this season too. He is a weak-willed, weak, weak-willed gambler, uh, degenerate father not a good guy you know a, a very humbling role to play mm. a hard role to play right there's nothing macho about davy Scatino, right uh, it, he's he's whimpering on the floor sleeping in a tent in his own sporting goods store during the bust out i mean it's it's a pitiful character to play but the actor does such a good job of playing against type that again it's in the playing against type that you get the idea like this guy's life was not supposed to go like this yeah. until he met tony soprano Yep. Right. And I just think he does a terrific job.
0: Yeah. I agree. He he really did great. So great that this could have been a one episode character, but they kept coming back to him. They showed the bust out. I love that they touched back down on him in the in the finale and he's just such a sad sack. Uh, he can't get the coffee out of the machine, and then yeah. he's off to Vegas. Yeah,
3: so
1: and he, in my mind, uh, he gets the Vin McKazian ending. I mean, Vin literally drops off a bridge, but this guy's moving to Vegas, and he's a gambling addict. I mean, that's the same thing to me.
0: Yeah, it might but, as well yeah. be. Yeah, his life is shattered. It's gone. It's ruined. But, yeah, I agree. This is like the one... This is like a guy you bring in to flesh out some elements of season two, and, you know, he's not quite a main character. He's recurring. But, yeah, I love what he brought to this, and you very eloquently described what he did and and why casting him against type was such a good move. I like these actors they bring in that are like this world has had an effect on them. Mm -hmm. and It's like Tony can corrupt America's dad and John Hurd or he can turn the T1000 to stone. That's right. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Well said. It's like, it's very good. And it's not by accident that they cast these guys for these roles. Absolutely. See. So I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted, I specifically wanted to have a little section of this podcast about Robert Patrick and what he brought this season to season two. Absolutely. But with that, what are your top three?
1: Yeah. So my uh, legit top three. So my number three is Michael Imperioli as Chris Maltesante. Nice. I'm glad I think he's on someone's list. I think it's a monster season for him, honestly. And, um,. So we have these um, twin episodes. We have, uh, you know, you have your uh, hit is a hit in season one, which is like Adriana and Christopher's flirtation with are we special, right, in in season one. And season two, the the pair episode is D-Girl, right? Christopher has this thing inside of him. It's a creative spark. It's a yearning. Can he actually get anywhere with it? And this is the second time that we're suggested maybe... He's inarticulate and kind of weird about it, but yeah, there is something there, and now we see other people like have an attraction to it, right? There is a a a fascination, um, so that that is great. But really, the episodes that sell Christopher for me is, of course, you know, "Big Girls Don't Cry," where we have him in his his acting classes, yeah. right? Ultimately, of course, the uh, attempt on his life, and then subsequently his performances in you know, "From Where to Eternity," but also it. it the D-Girl stuff is too good. Yeah. Uh, I'll talk about this more when we get to favorite episodes, but I think Christopher and D-Girl is actually like amazing. Mm-hmm. Like really a, a cut above what we've seen him do so far, and I think it's it's truly great. And to see him moving up in the family is just such a, a a heartening thing to see. Uh so really really great. Uh gosh, he was only my number 3. I'll be brief because we've already kind of like spoken so much about these last two. But my number 2 is David Provolo's Richie because come on, he is the uh elemental force in this. I I won't gild the lily too much we already talked about what a, a great actor he is yeah He's just don't so gild me <laughs> 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 you, can um, you can cut it <laughs> number one i think not close is i Taturo as is janice mm-hmm. i think it's her season she comes in in that first episode and you're like what are we getting yeah. what is this <laughs> and then you just watch her through the season and i don't think i have as emotional reaction to anything anyone else does as much as I have a reaction to Janice. Yes, it's usually annoyance. I usually feel the same way Tony does about her, but when she gets hit in the face and she shoots Richie, or even better, that moment at the bus stop when she tells Tony, I loved him so much, she could be full of shit, but I think she wants to believe it. And trying to figure out what is there that is real in that complicated moment, I fucking love. And I don't know really many other actors that can do that. I think she plays complicated so well. Yeah. And it's just a master class performance. For me, Janice
0: is like the season two character. Amen. We're on. Yep. I agree. Janice, she's so good. Well said, guys. Well said. Let's have one more uh, conversation before our final top three. I want to talk beca- about Carmela. Yeah. Uh, she had a hell of a season two. And Edie Falco can do no wrong. Lily had her in her top three. And she honestly is another one. She almost could get the Tony rule where it's like, you know, any season, Carmella, could be considered the one of the most awe-inspiring performances. And it's, and it's correct. You know what I mean? So, she has a very emotional season. She's kind of like... And this is elicited by the montage at the beginning of season two. She's kind of like, more so even than in season one, tucked into this domestic role. Serving dinner. Getting shit out of the oven. Staying home, taking care of the kids while Tony goes off to Italy. And she's putting on the face. And she's saying the prayers... And she's doing the best she can to stay afloat. And it just all catches up with her at the end with this arena situation. And you have to feel for her. But what makes her so compelling is she is not a character like Tony who will wallow in the misery until the point that you're rolling your eyes at him. She always finds a way to take her power. And I love her. I love that about her. What do we think of Carmella this season? The arena thing? And how she begins and ends season two.
1: It never sat right with me that she would be okay with the Irena situation. This is presented to us in season one, and season one doesn't have a lot of screen time for Irena, so we don't really right. know what that relationship is. Well, she's really not like.
0: okay with the Irena situation. Well, that's but the thing. She can forget about it if it's not in her face. Sure. But when it's in her face, that's when she starts having a problem with it. But
1: even when I consider just mob wives in general, not yeah. just Carmella, not just Edie Falco's Carmella, I always think like, how do these very strong women who deal with like the toughest of rough men? How do they bend themselves into a position where they accept a gumar Right? Like how do you how do you get
0: there? Right? I have a theory on this, but I want to hear Lily wants to say something.
2: Tradition? Please. You're brought up knowing that that's what happens. That's just part, part of it's, the it's life. part of the
0: tradition of the life. It's kind of one of those you can't into... Carmela is not okay with the tradition. No.
2: No, she's not. She's not.
0: But she loves Tony. That is legit. And It's also like, and this is not specific to Carmella, but to the mob wife thing, why these strong, fiery Italian women tolerate this shit is because there's two reasons for that. One, loyalty is everything. And even if, if someone is be- aren't being you know, right, but even if someone is being disloyal to you, you stand by your man, and it's one of those things like Fucked up, it's one of those things like crap. you'll you'll yell at him, you'll break stuff in the house, you'll smack him with a fucking pin roller or whatever those fucking things like are, rolling pin, y- yeah. yeah, rolling pin, you'll <laughs> kick him out of the house, you'll have this big drama, but in the end, you take him back because there's like this old Italian like. These boys are going to drive us crazy. We got to, you know, and then it's like, I'm sorry. We'll, you know, all right, come back. We'll make this work. They do it again. You beat them with the rolling pin. It's like on and on it goes, this thing of ours. Uh, there's There's sort of, you know, that's, I think, a part of it is it's like, and plus, don't forget the Catholic thing. That's a big part of it. Is we don't do divorce, which and the divor- men are
1: also violating
0: by committing adultery. Of yes, that's well, it's it's a hypocritical lifestyle, and it's also
2: You're also priests aren't supposed to you know molest little boys. So. And also,
0: remember the scene from Goodfellas.
1: <laughs>
2: it's not
0: exactly the same, but yeah, I got it.
2: <laughs> Isn't it? Wow.
0: <laughs> Let's not forget the scene in Goodfellas when they sit Henry down and say, "You know, you got to go back to your wife." Divorce is not only against the c- Catholic religion. It's not good for business in this lifestyle because wives know things. Wives know where the guns are hidden. Wives know where the money is. You know what I mean? So divorce is bad news. It's just not a part of the lifestyle. Now, what makes Carmela interesting is she is smarter, like Tony, smarter than your average mob guy. Carmela is smarter, sharper, and more emotionally in touch than a lot of, you know, than say like a Gabriella Dante Who's just kind of like, yeah, these are how men are. Whatever. I'm going to go to the gym. You want to go to the gym and spend a bunch of money? It's like, Carmella is able to buy in to a certain extent, but when it's thrown in her face. Yeah. Well, what I was saying was
1: initially, like, I I never understood how she was okay with it. And in season two, we find out the extent to which she is not okay with it. Yeah. Uh, It kind of comes up almost conveniently, not lazily in the script... The script is great, but it kinds of come up conveniently that the affair also is no longer working for Tony. Yeah. So it kind of is convenient for him to get rid of it at the same time that she can no longer take it. But I, I'm like, this is a decaying factor on a marriage, regardless of whether he ends it or not. The damage is sort of done. And I guess, you know, I have a much more traditional view of trust. I wouldn't cheat on the person that I'm agreed to be in a partnership right. with. Maybe her definition of trust is more bendy, but I... I would have to believe, and again, no spoilers, that this is going to be a persistent issue going forward because that contract has already been violated.
2: I also, if we globalize it a little bit, I feel like it's the same as being an Orthodox Jewish woman or a woman, uh, uh, Muslim woman who needs to wear a hijab. It's like, you may or may not like it, but this is what you've signed on for. This is what you believe. This is what your duty is. And so there's a there's a i i'm in this kind of mentality so you i don't know
0: in a way it's almost a dark parallel it's like tony may not on some level want to kill his best friend shoot him and shoot him in the chest but it's a part of the life carmela may not want on on most on a deeper true level to put up with tony's infidelity and his betrayal but it's part of the life it's like you get what you get
2: and what I mean by the is globaliz- the globalizing comment too is that the gain outweighs the frustration, I suppose. She's living in a really comfortable house. She can buy whatever she wants. If she wants to remove she wants to remodel her house every kids other are, month, her kids can are going to good that. schools. Her kids are going to good schools. It it the good outweighs the bad, just like your faith may outweigh the fact that you don't like the but- you know, sure. And on the sopranos, I I don't I wouldn't be able to agree I wouldn't be able to do that myself. But I also wasn't born into that.
3: Yeah, on the Sopranos, one's willingness to do the right thing is going to always be directly connected to that person's willingness to disrupt their level of comfort, mm. and that's always going to be a compromise. I think another thing that makes Carmela pretty interesting this season is that things are again I I would use the term more unpredictable. In the last season, there was a kind of stasis, I think, around, like, Carmella knows generally that Tony is in this lifestyle, and he's likely not faithful, but I could rationalize it XYZ way. Plus, the advice and the sexual attention that she's getting is from Father Phil, so it's like, (laughs) well, that's not... Plus, the kids (laughs) are also in a uh, kind of a place of stasis, like, okay, things are humming along, AJ's got these issues, Meadow's a star student. This season has Vic Musto, Mm. which really heightens the sexual tension. The the anti-Tony, basically. Right. It's also got Meadow going off to school, which is another question for Carmella to start asking, where do I fit? Yeah. Which also brings up the question of, like, even floating having another kid. So I think it has her (laughs) kind of at sixes and sevens in an interesting way, which is why, as Lily said, Edie Falco just gets to be the queen over and over again because she owns these scenes. She does such a terrific job with them, I think, uh, particularly for me in Night in White Satin Armor. Yeah, and uh, also from Where to Eternity.
0: That scene she has with Tony, isn't a sin to undo the good work he's done? She, she says, you ought to know you made a living of it. Oof. Just these gut ball punch lines she gives him when she needs to. So we do have to wrestle a bit with Carmela's hypocrisy. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's... Sometimes we're all hypocrites. Will in the sky keeps on turning. It, and, you know, it comes up you in go. a house arrest. It's, uh, Or a bust-out, rather. It's, it's Yeah, all of these characters demonstrate hypocrisy. That's right. just so, a reality of the world uh, and the, of the show. I, I would posit,
1: much like Pussy's relationship with the FBI, Carmela's relationship with Tony, after a time, is not going to be a sustainable entity unless major changes
0: are made. Hmm. Interesting thesis. I tend to agree, based on what we're seeing here, that this... Uh,
1: I, I only say that because the theme of her unhappiness in this marriage comes up almost every episode,
3: especially this season. Yeah, you no, know, I agree. It's a challenge for me in watching the show. I think because I admire Carmela in a way, I li- I find her very likable. But I but having to wrestle with her hypocrisy, mm. like the hypocrisy of the other characters, is is a tough one. Mm. It is for me.
0: That's what makes her so interesting. Mm. I'm excited to see what uh, season three. Bears out for Carmella. I have a feeling we're gonna have another great Carmella conversation in our season three retrospective. No surprise, but uh, yeah, let's you take this opportunity, guys. I want to get into our t- our final top three. Final top three. Final, final top, top three. three. The <laughs> final top three. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, so we're gonna give our final top three here, and then I want to give a last closeout. Last things, you thoughts on season two? And we will uh, call this a wrap, and 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 uh, I'm excited. But let's get into our top three favorite episodes. It's like choosing children. Yeah, It's so <laughs> hard.
1: It
3: is what you call a classic difficult decision. Yeah, <laughs>
1: and it's like it's hard too because like some of your favorite moments are not necessarily in your favorite episodes. Yeah, I mean, of you trying to take them in total. So right. Um, I'll start. Please, if that's all right. So, uh, my number three. You know, there are two episodes this season that, you know, they they loom large in Sopranos Canon, and those two episodes of course are Night and White, Satin Armor and and Funhouse, where it's like they're usually on people's top ten lists, if not top five short lists. And sometimes even for the whole series. Right, exactly. Uh, and it's it's hard for me to have not picked them. So I just did the logical thing for once and I didn't try to dislike them. I just picked them. Right. So uh, my number three is uh, the night and white sorry, number number three is Funhouse. My number two is the knight in white satin armor. My number one, believe it or not, it's still D Girl. I just I keep coming back to this episode. I there really adore about it. it. And if I have an hour that's free and I'm in a Sopranos mood, I might just throw on D Girl. Uh, I think it's a lovely companion to hit as a hit, or even it has a kind of a self-contained structure similar to College, yeah. uh, where you could just watch it just for Christopher's journey, just to see him, you know. Uh, finally make the choice at the end of which life he really wants to live and who he's going to serve, right? Mm. I I just, I, D-Girl was just so important to me because it was a Christopher episode, and I just, I I love where his journey is in terms of his creativity, in terms of his life with the mob. I thought Jon Favreau was such a sport and loved him in this episode. I also just, I love the meta conversation being had about gangsterism in art. And uh, how the artistic Hollywood people seek out sparks of authenticity to give their artifice life. Mm. And Christopher might not have creativity, he might not be a wordsmith, but he has the reality of his life, that he is a real person, that he lives an interesting life. Something that these fake people, uh, these fake flaky people who live this ephemeral artistic Hollywood Mm. life, they don't have. They don't have his realness. It's the same thing that makes his Rebel Without a Cause turn special mm-hmm. in Big Girls Don't Cry, right? He, Christopher is special. That's actually kind of what we get from these episodes In this line. is yeah. just like, at first we're like, oh, these kids, they think they're special, but they're not. And then it's kind of like, oh, Chris, he thinks he's special. And, oh, he might be a little special, mm-hmm. actually. And that's really interesting. The affair with Amy Seraph is interesting. Also, she is beautiful and, you know... It is titillating to watch them getting it on. Let's just be, you know, honest here for a second. Some sexy stuff going on in this episode. And uh, it was just, it was something I remembered after all these years of being like, wow, I love D-Girl, that's a great episode. And there's almost no more iconic image for me from the season other than the really obvious moments of him at the bottom of those stairs and that agency as she ascends up to that top heavenly door and away from him and out of his life to some unreachable place Mm -hmm.
0: and leaves him down there. You know, uh, and what a fun bit of irony that the people who make their living preying on people feel very similarly about Hollywood, you know, you know, it's like that they're, they're leeching off of them. Right. You know, it's so good.
1: Uh, and I, yeah, it's just a, it's a great episode. So it is D girl for me. And then, but I am acknowledging fun house and night in white satin armor are better episodes of television. My personal favorite. This is, this is the list. It's personal favorite. D girl's my favorite.
2: I'd like to go next because please. I have a very similar list explanation so to
0: Please, please do.
2: You know. Uh for my number 3 is commendatory. Mm. I okay. just love that episode. Yes. Um again, Polly in Italy is <laughs> I would watch an entire season of Polly in Italy. 2 is Night White Satin Armor. Uh, couldn't say anything better myself and D Girl for exactly why Jordan wow. said mm-hmm. it. it. Uh, not the best episode, but my favorite episode. Yeah. If I have a spare hour and I'm I am in a Sopranos mood, I will also watch D Girl. <laughs> yes. I love so it. I'm so that's happy why... to
1: this love. This is great.
2: Oh, well yeah. I D Girl is one of my all time favorites. It's a I just episode. I just love it. And with that we can move on. Okay. <laughs>
0: I'll go. Uh, My top three favorite episodes. Uh, A lot of crossover here. I want to give an honorable mention here. In much the same way that you guys talk about D-Girl being a great, and I agree with everything, a single thing you said about it. I had a smile on my face the whole time you were talking about it because everything you were saying is true, and I love the Hollywood stuff. But an episode I will throw on of The Sopranos anytime, and know I'll have a great time and, and really kind of dive in because the episode has such a special energy to it. I want to give an honorable mention to The Happy Wanderer. Yeah. It's it's centered around the executive game. It builds up to that game and then you get it's like perfect like crescendo to this event. The event happens and then there's all the fallout and it's got some great stuff. Really electric energy. Yeah. Great and scene. the executive game is exciting. It, yes.
1: It yeah. is
2: exciting. And I'm just going to, to vouch for what Chris said. He does watch this one on its own quite a bit. Mm. I've seen it so many <laughs> times and it makes me feel terrible every time. <laughs> as great as an episode and as great as the executive game is, the I the just the feel the horrible. The it makes me very sad. Yeah. It's a very sad episode.
0: Yep. The. Number three for me is a, is a different episode. I'm not sure anyone else is going to pick this one, and it's not one that jumps out. You look at the season two list, and there were a couple things I left off, thinking like, "Ooh, should I swap this out?" But I ended up sticking with my guns, and I'm glad I did. Big girls don't cry. Mm-hmm. Yep. Chris in the acting class. Uh, it, it's such a there's such a and for an episode that provides so many laughs and such action packed badassery from Furio, we get Tony and Melfi on the phone while that's happening, and the. Parlor and you can hear the screams and whatever from inside, and uh, it's just such an object's position. And then when Tony ends up back in therapy, that for that first scene with Melfi, and he drops such ugliness on her about he just says exactly what he was doing. You know he says uh, to her, "I wished it was me in there," and she replies, "Given the beating, or taking it." And mm. then we cut to Christopher sitting down at his computer, and you think he's gonna give something special about maybe some, his experience or something he's gone through and he just throws it all out and f- takes it out to the garbage and you got that melancholy jazz playing it's hard to describe in words what that ending and that whole episode makes me feel but it's such an odd blend and it's something that only the sopranos can accomplish in an episode that has so much laughter and movement to it but yet it just the ending feels so bleak and sad and it's Really good shit. Mm. It's just that's the sublime shit that they that they're able to pull off, and so that's a sleeper. But it's a it's a good one for me. Uh, and then two in one, uh, Funhouse number two, Night and White Satin Armor. It's hard one. not to pick them. It is hard not to pick them. They are just so good. Funhouse is just so. We talked about the dreams, and it's just so creative. That is so beautifully written. I don't I don't know how they wrote that one that's what's so baffling it's like how do you sit down and put those dream sequences on a fucking page you yep. know doesn't make sense I'm in awe of it therefore it has to be on my list and Knight in White Satin Armor if we do a series retrospective after all six seven seasons Night and White Satin Armor might be on that top three so I you know we said all we have to say about that one uh, on our episode but about it but it's just it speaks for itself it's a Sopranos classic mm-hmm. Paul close us out babe
3: Alright, gotta give a quick shout-out. Two honorable mentions. One is Night in White, Satin Armor, just for its sheer excellence. And From Where to Eternity. Mm, Um, Michael Imperioli's offering with the writing, stupendous. So many funny moments, of course, and really, really powerful moments. Some some gut-wrenching stuff. And some um, stuff that was very emotional for me. Number three is Funhouse. Mm -hmm. Because of the way it ended the season, because of the balls on it, because of how powerful... And playful it is because of Patterson's direction, because of the writing. Number two, a little different, uh, House Arrest. Mm. Mm. About boredom, about loneliness, about ennui. Just so well done, so well executed. I still, one of my memories of this season is Jordan talking about that ending Mm. and how emotional I felt. Mm. And uh, number one for me is The Happy Wanderer. Mm. Uh, It's the number one choice for me. Not in terms of the overall quality, though, I think it's great, but because of how it's different, because of how it focuses on this one thing is fun, it's dynamic to focus on the game and the doubleness of Tony's nature, and how he has to reflect on what he does, and how he, of course, makes Meadow do the same, and bringing in the kids was a really smart way in the writing to show, to begin to show some of the consequences of what these guys do, which we also talked about, it's not just oh, that so and so got it, but they had it coming to them. Eric Scatino's just a kid, he's not responsible for his father's gambling addiction. Yeah, but we see, um, the overall in the loss. And uh, another moment to me is the moment at the end, Tony sitting there thinking as the lights go down in that auditorium, and everyone else is ready to watch the show, and Tony's reflecting on what he does and what the cost is. Mm yeah
0: well said guys that's season two is there any are there any final thoughts anything you want to say about season two of this great show another great one in the can another near perfect outing for these folks uh it's it's uh, yet again another situation it's going to be hard to top i'm excited to discuss season three with you guys but
1: yeah i just um, want to say that I'm, I'm gonna miss big Pussy so much yes uh like what a cool character that was and i i know he did some shitty horrible things but like it that's a familiar face that you miss on the show i mm-hmm. feel so that's 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 a tough loss it's definitely the biggest
0: death up to this point so yeah there's like it's not a death that the show can't recover from but you look forward thinking like it's gonna that's one of those that's like it's gonna be a different show without this character on it
1: yeah yeah and then um yeah i just i'm so excited for season three on a personal level because um listeners i've revealed this several times but like my Sopranos viewing when I was younger was not very consistent, so season season three begins the dark time for me, where season three is a season I watched sporadically, so I only remember some of it. So now I'm actually mm-hmm. going to be watching some new television, which is really, really exciting for me. Yeah,
0: I think three and four are that way for you, right? Three and like four are kind of a kind of, blackout season You kind of came back in for the end more.
1: Yeah, that's right. Great. So I, I came back in around, well, no spoilers, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Great.
0: Very cool. Yeah, that's exciting. Anything else about Season 2, guys? I I, uh, I can't say enough good about it. I could just talk for the next uh, two hours about how much I love it and what it means to me and how artful it is, and we actually had several topics we didn't get to, but uh, you know what, I can't keep you here all night, folks. Uh, plus, we got lamb to eat, so uh,
3: we're going to get uh, going here. Did you have anything, Paul? No, I would only say that I think I will give Season 2 this credit over Season 1, as I think this is the beginning of when The Sopranos... Took off into the stratosphere and really left everything else behind, and was actually forced, I think, because it kept going to get more creative, if they were really going to surprise us. Mm-hmm. So, and that that we've talked a few times today about when Janice shoots Richie, there are more moments that will really shock you like that, mm-hmm. and only The Sopranos, I think, can produce them.
0: Yeah, when we're heading to some crazy places, uh, you know, season three is, is great. I'm 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 smiling thinking about it, you know, but uh yeah, this is a great show. This this you're right, Paul. This solidified it for me and for pop culture and for television history as you know, this wasn't a fluke. This wasn't a one off. Sopranos are here and they will stay as long as HBO uh, as long as David Chase keeps saying yes to HBO. Because <laughs> HBO probably would have had this run for 10 seasons if they could. But, yeah, it's 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 been great. And uh, I have the image of Tony smoking that cigar and then the fade out to the ocean burned into my head as what a place to leave it. You know, where do you pick up from there? We're all, as Jordan said in the last episode, we're all still in the funhouse. Uh, and uh, Carmela says the fun never stops uh, as she hands Tony the phone. And indeed it doesn't. We'll, we'll keep on turning. For season three, and speaking of season three, folks, just a little, uh, little housekeeping on the podcast here. We are going to be taking a very short, relatively short compared to how long uh, people who are watching the The Sopranos had to wait between seasons, uh, break in between season two and season three. So when you're listening to this, we're going to take a couple weeks off at the end of the summer just to kind of gain our bearings. We have a couple new things we're working on for the show for season three that may need a little time to incorporate. Life is getting back to normal post-COVID, so we're just going to take our time, bank up a couple shows, bring you some quality audio content, some great audio Sunday dinner, and uh, we will be back for Season 3. We will be doing all 86 episodes, and uh, we're in it. We're in it to win it. We are in The Sopranos, and with that said, I'm looking forward to getting back with all of you. Thank you for supporting our podcast and listening to this. Thank you for following us on social media and being a part of our family and being a part of uh, The Sopranos community. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Lily D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we will see you in Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood, Season 3.